you tonight in our precious Savior's name. As I look across this audience and look at the faces here, there's very few people that I could name by your name. A few faces that are familiar. Maybe after the week's over, I might know a few more names here. I'm not very good at keeping names. We bring you greetings from the church in Missouri. Maybe just a little bit about our church. We're located, as he said, in Advance, Missouri. We're kind of in the southeast corner of Missouri. We're an outreach church from the church at Litchfield. We've been there for eight years. It's kind of hard to believe it's actually been that long now that we've been there. As a compliment to the church here, we got to know a few of your youth. Last spring in Bible school, had one of the sessions there. And it's interesting how you form, tend to form an opinion of something or a church by a few individuals. Sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad. But I commend the church here. You, your youth left a favorable impression of the congregation here. So I commend you for that. Now, one of the brethren from the home church, he came to me and said, someone from this congregation asked him, what kind of a preacher is coming out here for these meetings? Now, I'm not sure how he labeled me. And I'm not sure how you will label me after this week's over. So I'm quite satisfied to leave that labeling with you. But by the grace of God, we want to just simply do as God directs us in sharing this week. For the message this evening, I'd like to just look in the Old Testament. We'll be probably preaching some from the Old Testament. I love... I enjoy preaching from the Old Testament and the different accounts there and making application, the types and shadows that it presents there. And it's interesting, the brother shared tonight. He actually looking at that a little bit. But maybe one more comment there. I'm very much open being accountable to you as a congregation what I share. I will give that opportunity if I keep in presence of mind there to to simply give a testimony to the accuracy of the word preached. I believe that's very important because we are fallible. There's, there's, I think it's very important that we do present the word as it's written here. We're looking at the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. The children of Israel's experience in their journey from slavery to the promised land. And in the book of Exodus, you can go and we'll just briefly just go through these chapters, not be spending any time there, but just simply as a type of the Christian's experience, how we experience salvation. Starting there in chapter 14 of Exodus, you have the experience there where they've been, they left Egypt, they come up against the Red Sea, and there's lots of different types here that... uh, 
that you could use here, and if you choose a different type than what I mentioned here, that's that's fine. I'm just simply uh, like to just look at it as a general uh, the picture of the our our walk with the Lord and the experience. You have Moses' instruction there in chapter 14 to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. They were totally helpless there in in delivering themselves. Type of a uh, type of Christ atoning work for us there on the cross, something that we could not do for ourselves, and that that marvelous deliverance there that we experience. Then you go to chapter fifteen, and you have the them coming to the waters of Mara there, and they're using a God instruct them to use a tree to uh, change the bitter waters to sweet. And I guess I personally liken that to that that deliverance from that bitter um, feelings of guilt there. That inward healing that God grants to us from that condemnation, that death sentence that, that was upon us. Now the sweetness, experiencing the sweetness of forgiveness. And I, I clearly remember that, that that weight of guilt that hung on over me as a young person and as God was speaking to my life there and as I finally surrendered my life to him there and then that load was lifted it was just such a sweetness there a joy and he called himself there Jehovah Rapha I am the Lord that healeth thee chapter 16 you have the manna now as we move into the Christian life there and we, we experience that daily receiving that manna that life sustaining bread the word of God chapter 17 you have the drinking water from the rock that nourishment there that, that thirst is quenched there and this is all a type of the, our, our experience with the Lord there in the Christian life now I'd like to begin in here chapter 17 verse 8 and <clears throat> So up to this point, it's God is doing everything for us. He provides salvation for us. He provides that that forgiveness, extends that to us. He provides his manna, his living water. But then we come to chapter 17, verse 8, then suddenly something changes here. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose out men, and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. So Joshua did as Moses said unto him, and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass, when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon. Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side, the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and the people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. For I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nissi. For he said, Because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And all of a sudden, now from 
that I'm not sure what your experience was, how you found it after you became a Christian. The most personal experience was that, you know, I, I had in mind that, you know, from now on, after I became a Christian, everything would be smooth sailing. Well, you know, that's not, that's not the way it is. All of a sudden now they're facing something. They're facing a warfare. They hadn't, hadn't bargained for this. And so now all of a sudden they had a responsibility. Here they were attacked by an enemy, came up behind them, picked on the weak, the faint, the weary. And I think a lot of people, their experience, they probably think the same way I did as a young person that, you know, from here on, you know, it's no more struggles with, with sin, you know, because I'm a Christian now. And, and so now all of us, we uh, thought from here on it just should be just easy going. But suddenly now, you know, I found myself faced with temptation. I said, you know, I thought there must be something wrong with my experience because, you know, why was I struggling with these, some of these temptations? What are those temptations? You know, now you're dealing with anger or you're dealing with um, looking at things that you shouldn't. You uh, seem like you're just so preoccupied with the temptation of wanting to dress certain ways, styles. I was especially rebellious in, toward the church. That was my early experience there. I didn't understand why the church, the regulations, the guidelines some of those things and that was what the enemy was trying to to was attacking me in those areas of weakness but this time they had a specific instruction that they were to go out and to fight it was quite different now they had a responsibility but God had promised them that he would grant them the victory yet it was something that he was not going to do for them they had to go out. They had a responsibility as they would, would resist the enemy that he would provide the margin of victory. So the title of the message tonight is Jehovah Nissi. As these people looked up on the hill as they were, as they were battling and maybe as they got faint and they got weary and they'd look back up there and they'd see Moses up there holding up the rod of God that they knew that God was fighting for them. It was something to assure them of victory. Now, Jehovah Nissi just simply means the Lord is my banner. Now, a banner is an ensign or a standard carried at the head of, a, of an army. It's something, it's symbol, it was some kind of symbol that you would recognize. And it, 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 it was, in looking at that symbol... It was what that army was, was what they stood for, what they were promoting. Now, some of the older ones, you remember seeing the, the Nazi symbol, the swastika. Um, and as you would see that symbol, that was what Hitler stood for, what he was trying to promote, the white supremacy and, and his hatred for Jews. And I'm not sure what all else he was promoting, but you'd see that swastika and, and you you'd just right away... You'd, you'd think of what Hitler was promoting. Later, you'd see the hammer and sickle, the uh, symbol of Russia. And there again, that symbol was something what the communists were promoting. remember reading several years back. It's been, been a number of years. But a young man in Kentucky there was 
was driving around with a Confederate flag stuck in the back of his truck, and his flag was waving there, and he pulled into a gas station. And there was a number of black, black youth there that seen that Confederate flag, and right away that symbol, they were, they were irked by what it, what it symbolized because it was a reminder of slavery. They confronted the young man, and a fight ensued, and, and they ended up shooting and killing the, the, the young white man there. But it was that symbol, that ensign there, that, that banner, what he was promoting, what he was, whether he was actually doing it for slavery or promoting that type of thing, but they recognized it as a symbol of slavery. So when Israel looked up on the hill, and they seen the rod of God, they, that was what what God, his symbol there, they seen that, and that that self-existent God was, was fighting in their behalf, and it gave them the courage to, 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 to fight. Now I'd like to look at these two, two different nations here, Amalek and, and Israel, and what they symbolize. Amalek is a type of the flesh, that's what we're, we're, we're talking about here tonight. It's that type of our old nature that we're, we're dealing with. And Israel, of course, is, is the, the children of God. And these two nations stem back now to two, bro- two brothers. Could someone just quickly help me? Were these two nations, what, what were the name of those two brothers that they go back to? Jacob and Esau. God said in, in Romans 9.13, Paul quotes, says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Now as a young person, as a young Christian, I used to struggle with predestination. You have a statement like that, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. You have the account there in in Exodus there where God was dealing with Pharaoh and it says that God hardened his heart. And so as a young person, I used to struggle with that. You know, those those people didn't have a chance because God hardened his heart. God had decided, Esau I hate, but Jacob I love. Until I come to understand that God was using these two twins, they were twins here, two brothers, that they typified two different types of nature here. Of course, Esau was the firstborn. He was the one that was born first of these two twins. Esau represents our, the first birth, which we all experience, our natural birth, that nature that we're born with. That's what God said he hates, because Esau symbolized that. And we'll look at, at that a little bit later, what the way Esau responded in, in, to God, Esau was a very self-centered individual. He, he looked out strictly for himself. He was one that operated on the, that fleshly nature. But that's what God said he hates. Jacob, of course, the second born, symbolizes the new birth. When we have that changed nature, and that's what God desires for all mankind, that we would have experienced that new birth and would have a change of nature. 
And we have the account there in Genesis where Jacob there, first encounter there at Bethel with God. And later as he surrendered, we'll hopefully look at that later and maybe some other messages. But then his name was changed there. He became a prince and had power with God. Symbolized that, that change there. Now there are several things here that God says in dealing, viewing with Amalek there in that fleshly nature. It says the Lord will have war with Amalek. There's not going to be any prisoners. There's not going to be any truce. There's not going to be any compromise. It's going to be an all-out war. God has one thing in mind that that, that that fleshly nature is destroyed. It'll be an ongoing war. It says from generation to generation. There's no ceasefires. There's no resting. Now we're not preaching tonight of the complete the complete eradication of the flesh. We're not, we're not saying that tonight. Because I believe as long as we're in this life, we're going to be having to deal with that flesh, fleshly inclination. And yet as long as we hold up God's standard, there's going to be victory. We can live in victory. But it's not going to be a place that it's a one and done deal, that we, we put him to death and then we're good to go from here on. I believe that we're always going to be dealing with it. In our, and we're going to be dealing with it in our children. And we're going to be dealing with it in our grandchildren. You as a congregation are always going to be dealing with that. That within your group here. Because you always have the young coming on. We're always going to be facing those things. But that he has provided the margin of victory. Nobody needs to live in defeat. Now I'd like to look at some of the characteristics of those that operate that fleshly nature. When you see individuals and you see some of these characteristics and the first thing is it's dominated by fleshly or by bodily appetites and emotions. That's the first thing. Someone that, that is operating some of the characteristics of the flesh is dominated by bodily appetites and emotions. If it feels good, do it. I want what I want now with little thought for the consequences. And of course, that's what Esau symbolized. We know the account, I think, very well. Self-denial is something that's completely foreign to someone that's operating in the flesh. You have Galatians 5 there, where it gives a, a list of the works of the flesh. And it names just a whole list of things. And then it concludes, in a such like, it's not a complete list, just because it's not listed there, but it says, in a such like. whole list of things those are things that that dominate the individual that's how they operate bodily appetites brother read tonight there hebrews 12 there says esau was a fornicator a profane person no moral restraint see society becoming more and more lack of restraint because that's the nature that they're operating under that's what the nature demands of them. 
The second thing is that it will never be satisfied with more. No matter how much they, they chase after something, it never, it never satisfies, it never fulfills. Proverbs 27.20 20 says that hell and destruction are never full and the eyes of man are never satisfied. That nature that we're born with, no matter how much we get, is always a craving for more. You see individuals that spend a lifetime chasing after those things and it never delivers what it promises. The third thing is the lack of appreciation for spiritual things. You see how Esau lightly regarded his birthright that he traded it for a bowl of soup. Romans 8, verse 7 says, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. There is no desire to please God, because they are self-centered. And yet if, it, if it's something for their ego, they can become religious. They can make some effort in, in religion but yet their their whole drive is is to for their own ego and speak lightly of of spiritual things through all the pearly gates jokes and the saint peter jokes and you can make scorning comments about the church you said they don't appreciate their godly heritage They feel rather restricted by guidelines. Their decisions are based on temporal values rather than eternal values. The fourth thing is there's no fear of God. There's no desire to honor Him as God. Deuteronomy 25.18 Maybe just quickly turn to that, talking about Amalek when they were rehearsing their Deuteronomy, what what took place there. Deuteronomy 25, verse 18, talking about Amalek here, or verse 17, remember what Amalek did, did unto thee by the way when we were come forth out of Egypt, how he met thee by the way and smote the hindmost of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee, when thou wast faint and weary, and he feared not God. Therefore he shall be, when the Lord thy God hath given thee rest from all thine enemies round about, in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it, that thou shalt blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Thou shalt not forget it. There was no fear there of God. The way people respond to authority and understand that all authority comes from God and yet to hear people talk disrespectful and there's times I've been guilty of the same our president authority figures, church leaders parents people in positions of responsibility an individual that can talk loosely 
and, and belittling authority figures, you understand that somewhere they, they don't have a concept or don't under have a right perspective of God because authority and God are, are one and the same because God ordains all authority. He talks about Esau there. It says he was a grief of mind to his parents, to Isaac and, and Rebekah. Because he lightly regarded their, their, their direction for him and his choosing of, of a wife. And so you see these people going through life, running through God's roadblocks, those authority figures that they put in, God puts in their path to give direction to them. And hence you see a life of poor judgments, choices in life that bring bitter consequences. God's blessing can't rest upon someone that's operating in the flesh. And the fifth one is an insincere repentance. See there in Hebrews 12 where it says, We found no place of repentance, so he sought it carefully with tears. Esau wasn't, wasn't, wasn't truly repentant. There was no change of life. It was, he, he was regretting some of the decisions he made. It's kind of like, sorry I got caught. Sorry I made some bad choices because it does not turn out quite like I wanted it to. But genuine repentance is when a person confesses an agreement with his condition, God's assessment of his condition. He's in agreement with God, how God views his, his, his soul's condition. And you want people to know that you're truly sorry for your past life. And of course, in restitution is, is, the, is the evidence of that. So God made it very clear that Amalek must be destroyed because there's no converting the flesh. It has to be done away with. It has to be crucified because it's impossible to convert him. It says we must, must even blot out the remembrance of him. And to me, that's another characteristic of, of someone that's, that is still operating in the flesh is when they can look back on their past life and kind of glowingly talk about the good old days and talk about the things that they were involved in before they became Christians. To me, there ought to be a, a shame about that past life. There's something about it that it, it should, we, we should never be glowingly talk about the past. There's something wrong. Now, I'd like to take this scenario then, this is what we've been sharing here now, and I'd like to look at one man's experience in his failure to deal with the flesh. And I'd like to turn to First Samuel. And looking at the life of Saul. In First Samuel 15. You have the account here. And I think you all are well familiar with it. Where God gave him very clear instructions that they were to go and to completely annihilate, destroy, not spare anything of the Amalekites. Verse 3 says, 
Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have, and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infants and suckling and ox and sheep and camel and ass. Now there was times in the past that as God had directed them to conquer other nations, that there was times that they, they could keep the spoil. There was times that they could take the choice animals. They, there was times that they could take the gold and the, the precious things there. They could take captives. But this time it was completely different. This time he said, destroy everything. He says, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel. I'd like to just look, go down through here and just look then how Saul's failure to respond to God's clear directions. And keeping in mind that Amalek is a type of the flesh. That God instructs us that we must deal decisively with the flesh. Destroy it. Get rid of it. Don't spare anything. And Saul's response after he came back and his failure to, to do as God had directed. You have in verse 13, his comments there in, in, upon meeting Samuel. says, I have performed the commandments of the Lord. And that's something that's always been troubling to me, how we get swept aside by the testimony of the disobedient. See people just totally throwing their heritage out the door. People breaking their parents' hearts. People disregarding the counsel of the church. And yet they can have such a glowing testimony of how wonderful God is and what God's doing in their life. And they can be involved in mission work. Now, I'm not suggesting that we set ourselves up as judges. But, brothers and sisters, tonight, I believe we need more Samuels that put their finger right on the spot there and say, what about the sheep, Saul? You know, those sheep were back there bleeding and were condemning Saul. If God is to destroy everything, spare nothing, And yet them sheep were back there telling on him of his disobedience. But he said, I perform the commandment of the Lord. Isn't God good? Isn't God wonderful? You can get a little charismatic yet too. People who just totally disregard God's word. Things that are black and white. Living a life of disobedience and yet can have such some of the most glowing testimonies. You know, sometimes I think we get confused between personality and spirituality. Because I hear the comments, well, they're so nice. I mean, they're just so... And brothers and sisters, I'm not saying that the people can't be nice and are, don't have a pleasant personality. I'm talking about their spiritual condition before God. 
their lack of obedience, where God is clearly instructing obedience, that's the fruit of a true Christian is obedience. But see, Saul faced the same thing that we face in our day. Peer pressure. You know, we talk about our youth. You know, that they have a hard time with peer pressure. But you know, I, I'm, I'm 56 years old and you know, I still, I have, I need, need to deal with peer pressure too. Because I have, I have family. I have people that I was once very close with. You know, I, 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 I'm human enough. I want to be well thought of. I want to be accepted. And yet as I see them leaving that which they once would have held to and once would have supported. And now they've left that. And now it's put a strain in our relationship because, you know, now they're saying, you know, we're legalistic and we're traditional and what all, all, all those things, you know, those accusations You know, Saul said that the people spared. You know, the pressure was on. And Saul buckled under that. You know, in our time, you know, we have cousins. We got brothers and sisters. And, and you know, there you are in family gatherings. And there the pressure's on. And are you going to buck the crowd? Or are you going to... You're going to stand firm. It's not just youth. We all face it. And then you've got the humanistic reasoning. Verse 9. You know, God said it was all evil. It was very clear. Destroy everything. It's all evil. But here the people, they said, Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good. It would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and refuse, they, they destroyed utterly. So here you see human reasoning now. God says it's evil. But they're saying, now, now you know, God... You're a great God, but you don't quite understand. I mean, these, some of these animals are really beautiful. You know, I mean, this could be, we could uh, have save these animals and we could do God a tremendous sacrifice with these beautiful animals here. You see him overriding God's command. That's human, humanistic. So when we determine in our own, our own way of thinking... Trying to discern God's word by our own natural man. And in Corinthians, Paul says that, but the natural man or the humanistic thinking or natural way of thinking receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. There's a lot of things that we look in Scripture and we, we try, if you try to reason through them for just from our natural way of thinking, those things don't make sense. And it looks foolish. 
And yet when we when we desire to know truth and we read God, I don't understand it, but I'm going to obey it because that's what you said. Then God, I believe, opens our eyes to see the truth of it. He reveals that to us. But until we come to the place that that I'm committed to obeying it, even though it doesn't make sense to me in my my natural way of thinking, but I'm committed to obedience. Only then can God reveal truth to us. But our way of thinking so often is, God, you, you show me the truth of this thing, then I'll obey it. And he'll never do it. He says, you obey it, and I'll reveal it to you. Because that looked foolish to destroy all these, these nice animals to the human way of thinking. There are a lot of things that we face today that may be neutral in themselves. And maybe it could be very useful things, helpful things. But because of their potential to lead us away from God, we choose to, to deny ourselves those things. That potential to feed that fleshly nature, that which I, I know my flesh would crave to be a part of that, but I deny myself that because of that potential that it would feed that fleshly nature. Paul says in Romans thirteen fourteen, but put you on the Lord Jesus Christ to make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. So he says, anything that's going to cater to that to my fleshly nature, don't make provision for it. Don't put yourself in a position there that it that you're going to get sucked into it. So often you hear the comments, what's wrong with it? The frustration of youth, sometimes even parents. I never hear hardly the comment, what's right with it? It's always what's wrong with it. You know, it's just our, our natural way of thinking. You know, we, until you tell me what's wrong with this thing, then I'll put it away. But until we come to really understanding how God hates, God is at war, it's at enmity there, there's a battle there. Until we understand that, that nature within us, that if I give any room for that at all, that thing will, if I feed it, it'll grow. And it'll lead me on a path away from God. Now I'm using my imagination a little bit here. And hopefully I, I'm not going to do a disservice to the word of God here. But I, I was just trying to picture that, what that could have possibly looked like. As the children of Israel were going through the camp there of the Amalekites. And of course, you know, the things, there were some things that were black and white. They said everything that was evil. And uh, I'm not sure what the other word was there, but he said they utterly destroyed it. Well, naturally, the command to destroy all the males, well, that's clear. You know, you're naturally, you, you, you see that as black and white because if, uh, if I don't kill them, they're going to kill me. 
So you see that is out and out dangerous there. So they go in there and they're killing these male Amalekites. And possibly they see the women that, you know, that could be a, a harm to them. So they, they get rid of them. But now can you imagine that they come up on, a, on a, a little child, a little infant laying in a crib. And now what are you going to do with this little infant? You know, I mean, he's, he's totally harmless. This little infant, I mean, you know, he's not going to hurt anybody. I mean, he's, he's totally incapable of hurting anybody. And so you can see the human reasoning. You know, maybe one of them was ready to run a spear through him. And the other's what? What's wrong with leaving him? Let him, let him go. And they, then they come to the sheep and they, or the cattle. And boy, just a sleek animal here. And it looks so foolish that you would just go destroy something that's perfectly harmless. And yet, you know, the church can look the same way in the eyes of those that are operating on the, the fleshly nature. Some of the positions that the church takes can look so foolish. And yet, that which is harmless today. Now, if you're going to just isolate everything and you're looking at it strictly from here and now. And yet, I believe if you're a spiritual congregation and you're committed to obedience to the word of God. And you're directed by the Holy Spirit. That God gives us a, a insight to look down the road. We're not looking just here and now, but we're looking down the road where this thing could lead to. And we make application to it. And yet so often we tend to isolate the thing and, and it's just here and now and this little baby is just totally innocent and, and harmless and let him be. We'll let him live. And that's, but that's exactly where the flesh is looking for that, those, the weak ones, looking for the weary ones, looking for the ones that are lagging behind. Now, who's going to be in that group? Who are you going to put in that category? Well, right away we say our youth. Well, sometimes our youth are more mature than some of our older ones. Have more spiritual insight. But tonight I believe that if you're here in this congregation and your focus is on liberties, your focus is on I want to get all I can get. Or you chafe at the restrictions of the church. You're constantly struggling with when the church addresses a current issue and, and takes a position because of the concern of where this thing might lead to and that's, you're, 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 you chafe with that. Rules, rules, rules. We're coming up with more rules. Then tonight you're, a, you're, a, you're a, one of the most vulnerable ones to the attack of the flesh, the Amalekites, because that's exactly where the, they're going to target. And tonight, my my prayer is that that you'd see the church as a as a 
haven of safety. And when the church addresses issues and, and, and is looking down the road and we're looking for the, not only for our good here and now, but we're looking for the future generations. But getting back to our story now. That which Saul failed to clearly and decisively destroy at that point. Now I'm using the dates that are given beside the chapters here. And I don't know where they come up with those dates. But you see Saul then after he failed in clearly coming through with obedience to God. You see from that point then his life spiraling out of control away from God. Finally to the point of consulting a witch. He had stooped to that level. That's how far he drifted from God. And then you look at the end of 1 Samuel. At the end of Saul's life. And the first chapter of 2 Samuel. Now I'm not sure what the discrepancy is there. But Saul there as he was wounded in battle. And, and he told his armor bearer to thrust him through because he didn't want to be captured by the Philistines. And his armor bearer wouldn't do it. So Saul fell on his sword and says that he died. But then in the very next chapter of Second Samuel chapter 1, there was a young man came to David with Saul's crown and his bracelet. And he said that he came up on Saul and, and Saul's life was still whole in him yet. And he told him to thrust him through. And he said he thrust him through with his spear. And then he took his, his crown and his bracelet and brought it to David. 23 years later, that which Saul failed to, to destroy, destroyed him. Robbed him of his crown. Now, When Saul no longer held up God's banner, God was no longer Jehovah Nissi. Saul lost his relationship with God. Saul's ability to, to discern, you see him making one poor choice after another. He became people conscious rather than God conscious. See him overruling God's word. When things were clear, you see him going totally against that. You see him making an attempt at, at repentance. And yet Saul, you see what he was more interested in, in maintaining a good appearance before the people. He wanted Samuel to, to worship there with him. Tonight, brothers and sisters, I believe it's just as serious. When we disregard God's command, maybe there's something that God has revealed to us through the church. Maybe there's something that you know your parents are, are clearly giving you direction and you're totally disregarding that. You're wanting to, to you're wanting to have that little liberty. 
And it's something that your parents see clearly that it's going to be something that's going to be detrimental to your, your, your spiritual well-being. Or the church has taken a position and you're chafing at that. The same potential lies within each one of us to disregard that. That which we fail to, to destroy in our lives, to get rid of, will sooner or later destroy you. Because that which you feed will grow. That which you feed, and it'll eventually it'll rob you of your crown, and it has eternal consequences. As the brother said tonight, see that you refuse not him that speaketh. I don't know where you all are at tonight. I don't know you as a group and congregation, individuals. Tonight, I'm just going to open it. If someone has a something that you would like to publicly acknowledge, something that you'd like to get rid of, I'm not going to put no pressure on this group. I don't believe in it. I don't believe that there's any pressure. It's going to be the Holy Spirit. But if there's something that you've been struggling with and you know that you're going against God-ordained authority in your life, God is speaking to you, you've been resisting that, you'd like to make a... you'd like to get rid of that Amalekite in your life there that would like to just give an opportunity if you want to stand to your feet and share confession or testimony give you that opportunity here just for a few minutes If there's someone that would like to give a word of testimony, if there's something I've shared tonight that you feel like has not been scriptural, I'd like to just open myself to you as well as a congregation. I think it's very important that what we're teaching here tonight is, is the word of God. Okay, we appreciate your attentiveness and may God bless you again I just encourage if there's someone here that's struggling with something that you know you've been resisting the spirit's wooings in your life I encourage you there to talk to someone clear yourself of that thing because that thing has the potential to take you away from God there's a lot of things that we can face and temptations Continue to pray as the Lord direct us in these meetings that be faithful in, in sharing that which God would have me to share. Let's all stand for a closing prayer.